Doug Scheiding of Row Cookers, baseball fan and barbecue world champion. You are listening to the Baseball and Barbecue Show with Lynn and Jeff. Welcome to episode 104 of Baseball and BBQ. I'm here with the fabulous Leonard Aberman. Yes, thank you. I, I am rather fabulous, and you are amazing as well. That's true. I'm Jeff Cohen. And yes, Jeff, wow, you flipped it, you flipped it around there. Yeah, well. You'd, I like it. And you know what? You know what? That's okay, because this is a different episode. You know why it's different? Why? Because we're back quickly for those who keep you know who keep score on these things we usually issue a podcast every two weeks but jeff we're back after one yeah how about that is that because we have a lot of awesome content that oh, we, we want do to get out? we have to get it out yeah no you're right you're right so we are back with a one-week break and jeff can you you want to tell us who why we are back with great content. Who's on this show? Well, we have part two with Eric Sherman. Part one wasn't enough. I mean, it was so fantastic. I, I, this is going to be just, just as good. Part two with Eric Sherman. And then we have someone who is up for the Barbecue Hall of Fame. We, we hope she gets in. Her name is Leanne Whippin. Leanne Whippin, who you may want to say is bordering on barbecue royalty. But if if you didn't think she was barbecue royalty, what about wow. that's my little segue. Uh-oh. I have, segue. <laughs> I have this article that appeared. It's very short. It was in the uh, in the New York Post and it's Philip's skill on the grill. When Phil Prince Poe. Philip, the Prince Philip, Prince Philip. Yes. It says when Prince Philip died nearly six months ago at age ninety nine. The tributes poured in from far and wide, praising him for his supportive role at the side of Queen Elizabeth II over her near 70-year reign. Jeff, that, that says nothing about barbecue. Does not. No, but maybe this part will. Now it has emerged that Philip had another crucial role within the royal family. He was the family's barbecue king, perhaps testament to his Greek heritage. So he was a pit master, wasn't he? He was. That's fantastic. <laughs> he adored barbecuing and he turned into it. He turned that into an interesting art form. His oldest son, Prince Charles, said in a BBC tribute program that will be broadcast. Well, it says on Wednesday, but I guess it was on already. It and 
if I ever tried to do it, he, I could never get the fire to light or something ghastly. So he'd say, go away. (laughs) (laughs) In excerpts of Prince Philip, the royal family remembers, released late, well, whenever, members of the royal family spoke admiringly of the late Duke of Edinburgh's barbecuing skills and his love of cookery shows with the hairy bikers, Cy King and Dave Myers among his favorites. Okay, never heard of those, but well, uh, I noticed that he didn't say podcasts. Oh, he would have definitely mentioned us. Oh, I yeah. think we were. I think, so. I think we were definitely Prince Philip's favorite. And we are heard in England. Yes, that's right. Yes, and as a matter of fact, on our last episode, we had two London residents, that's so right. from across the pond. And you know what? Let's just say hello and thank our London listeners as we're reading this, right? Yes. He's definitely a dab hand at the barbecue, said Prince William, Philip's oldest grandson. I can safely say there's never been a case of food poisoning in the family that's attributed to the Duke of Edinburgh. Very nice. I wonder what his, do you think he was a brisket guy? He was was the prince of the pitmaster. Yes, (laughs) yes, he was. So, so back to back to who we have on, Jeff. Yes. We have Leanne Whippen. She was absolutely fantastic. We have Eric Sherman, part two. And and really, the truth is, we took a bribe from someone who said, "I cannot wait two weeks to get right. to America." <laughs> you took so the bribe because I, I didn't see anything of that. <laughs> anyway, if you want to meet, if you want to contact the show, call us 516-855-8214. Email is baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Our Facebook is baseballandbbq. Our Twitter at baseballandbbq. Instagram, baseballandbarbecue, where barbecue is all spelled out. Website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. And please, Len, what do we want people to do? Rate and review us. Yes. Do it. Yes. And with that, here is part two with Eric Sherman. Eric, I go to a restaurant. I say to them, I've never eaten in your restaurant. What is the one food that if like I was a restaurant critic, you would want me to eat because it represents, you know, the best of your restaurant. So I pick up this book. I'm thinking about buying it. What is the one story that will just knock me, you know, blow me away, will just make me want to take this home and read what's that one story in here oh boy i mean each chapter is like one of my children you know like <laughs> so there's i mean they're they're great stories in, in different ways you know i think it's a tie i i think if i i mean i think it's got to be the buckner and the evans chapters to me I mean, mm. how how do you how do you be everything that Buckner went through and, you know, you, you know, you capture his last major interview where he's, he probably knows he's going to die and, and he's giving you everything he's got, you know, he's not holding back. And then you have Dewey Evans, you know, who, you know, is telling you the story about how he had two very sick boys his whole career and how he would leave them at the hospital after they had surgery, pr- promised he's going to hit them a home run. But then again, he told me the oil cans 
two chapters their their favorite. It's tough. I mean, the Bruce Hurst chapter I thought was was really good because he didn't want to talk to me at first, right. and so it it went from a chapter I had very very low expectations for, but I knew I had to get him. You know, he was the Red Sox star of the World Series, but I wasn't expecting much because he hadn't done an interview about eighty six and four years. He didn't want to do any more. And so I flew out to Arizona to see him thinking, okay, you know, this'll, this'll be an hour if I'm lucky and I've got him. That's good. You know, I could check the box and turned out to be one of the most emotional introspective interviews I've ever done. So it's hard, but I, you know, if, if I had to recommend one off the menu, I guess Dwight Evans. Ah, it's tough though. <laughs> you know what? I always say, okay, and, and, and you're right, the, you, the, the amount of research you did, the, there's so much good stuff in here. I put you on the spot. I apologize. Oh, no, it's, it's a great question. But, but, thank you, but I should have made you choose. But I, I, I always say that the authors that we have on, they're not making tons of money from these books, okay? Or whatever they make is well-deserved, but... The fact is you did so much research and put together such incredible stories that this book is worth every penny, you know, shekel, whatever it is <laughs> to get this book. Two Sides of Glory, the 1986 Boston Red Sox, in their own words. It's, it, it's fantastic. I'll say it again and again and again. And, and, and Eric, you didn't know this, but we are the Oprah Winfrey of baseball and barbecue books. So I did this know book that. is going to blow up. You, you will sell at least one copy from this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you, you've given us so much of your time. We really appreciate it. And we can go on talking hours for, about this book. It's really a great book. I do have one or two more questions. Before we get to that, I want to make sure everybody knows where to get the book. I know you're part of the Pandemic Baseball Book Club. So you should check that out as well. I think there's a link where you can get the book. But where else do people pick it up? Well, anywhere books are sold. You know, I always tell people, to, you know, especially in these difficult times, to support you know your local, family-owned bookstore if you can. If you can't get get out to the bookstores, then certainly uh, Amazon. It's easy. BarnesandNoble.com. Bookends has been a friend for a long time. So bookends.com there in Richmond, New Jersey. But I would say this, you know, a ask as many questions as you want. I was having this conversation with Jeff Perlman a while back and we were saying how, you know, you write a book and you, you almost like go into a cave for two or three years and then, you know, you're, you're allowed out, you know, for that week or two to heavily promote the book. And it's like, you know, you see, daylight again and then you have to go back in your cave and you know this is my seventh book and I mean to me one of the best parts about doing a book is coming on a show like this and talking you know to two really astute uh baseball men like you so it's well, great you're absolutely right we are very astute <laughs> yes we if anything we are astute yes <laughs> astute thank you well, you write about in a chapter, there's one chapter where, where two, two of the Red Sox players have passed away. Yeah. Uh, Steve Henderson, not Steve Henderson, uh, Dave Henderson and, uh, and Don Taylor. Yep. And, uh, you know, when I saw Dave Henderson hit that home run against the Mets and do a little jump and then 
catch the fly ball and like he's just about to celebrate. I'm like, this guy. But wow, what he went through too, but his life was really, you know, very moving as well. And, you know, I wasn't a fan of the Red Sox, 86. I'm a fan now. I mean, they have such a, a such a, oh, what a team that you feel, feel for them. Could you tell us about what you wrote about Henderson and Baylor? Well, Baylor, I mean, he was one of those missing ingredients. Like they didn't, they really didn't have a compliment to Jim Rice in that, you know, Rice was certainly an intimidating guy and for a time was the most feared hitter in baseball. I don't care what anybody says. You know, sometimes people will argue with me and they'll say, no, in the late 70s, Dave Parker was, you know, or Dave Winfield was. It was Jim Rice. And, 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 and not only was he intimidating at the plate for you know, the most intimidating, I thought, for at least two or three years or four years, but also, you know, he was an enforcer. Well, now he had somebody to join him, like Don Baylor, another, you know, quiet leader who uh, spoke softly but carried a big stick. And so he was just what the doctor ordered. He was a huge acquisition, and he fit beautifully in the middle of that lineup. And, you know, with Dave Henderson, he was, you know, a, a good player with the Mariners. But what he did in the postseason for the Red Sox, I mean, he came out of nowhere. I mean, you know, I did the book with Mookie and, and Mookie was telling me, my God, I mean, we didn't have anything on this guy as far as, you know, scouting. And like this guy just came out of nowhere. And the ironic thing is for his huge role and, you know, they're both Beller and Henderson. Here we are, you know, it's 35 years now. We're talking about them both as, such an integral part of that 86 Red Sox team. And yet, would you believe that it was less than a year later from that 86 postseason, they were both gone? Baylor, I think he was traded to the Twins or released or something crazy. I think he was traded for like very little. And Hendu, I'm not sure. I think he went straight to the A's. I could be wrong about that. But he ended up, but, but they both ended up winning World Series in, in those cities. But when you think about it, it's incredible how there's such a tremendous part of Red Sox lore for that 86 season. And less than a year later, they were both gone. That, you know, people talk about the Mets, the 86 Mets, as being combustible and how uh, it was like, you know, a flame in the wind, you know, it was never going to last. The Red Sox were a lot like that too, you know, uh, Gedman tested free agency and that was the year of collusion. He was a never, never the same player after that experience. You know, Baylor and Henderson were gone soon, soon after, you know, there were a number of examples. Chiraldi didn't last that much longer. Um, He was dealt in the Lee Smith trade. Nipper was in that trade. So the team turned over pretty quick. So it was, they achieved greatness, and then almost as quickly it was gone. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember that. And, uh, you know, as you we were talking about Baylor, it occurred to me that Seaver and Baylor were on the same team. It was Seaver who got Baylor for his last out for the uh, 300, 300th win at Yankee Stadium. I remember that, yeah. That's right. Very good. I wonder, I I, I wonder if they ever talked about that. I'm sure they did. Yeah. 
another one, like we, we mentioned Sherald before, and you were able to get Sheraldi because uh, of Ed Hearn, who, yeah. by the way, was a guest on our podcast last year. Great guy. Sheraldi seems to be at peace where, at, with the whole thing now. Now he's a coach at a, at a school, and he seems very, very happy, just wants to be out of the limelight and, and do his thing. What, how about your encounter with Calvin? What's interesting about Chiraldi, like I said earlier, the second half of that 86 season, he was phenomenal. And he never really came close to achieving that greatness ever again. And so I figured it was because of the World Series, you know, that it, it affected his psyche. And, you know, he says no. You know, he, he said what affected him more was the fact that um, he kept – getting moved from being a starter to a reliever, starter to reliever. And that's very hard for a pitcher to, you know, to make that, that transition, you know, in season. And, you know, he was a starting pitcher too. It was the Red Sox in 86 that turned him into a, a reliever. And, you know, he really, it really clicked for, for him, but, you know, he's, uh, he's always been a person of faith who has leaned heavily on his faith. Uh, through good times and bad, he really is a believer, and and I think that helped get him through a lot. Uh, you know, he he's battled alcohol his whole life. He readily admits that, but uh, but it wasn't because of '86. You know, he he had had issues before that apparently, but that's under control. He's coached high school baseball for many years. He's been, I mean, he's he has a a career mark. I think he has over 300 wins um so he's excelled at that so he's in a very good place and i couldn't be happier for him because i didn't know what to expect you know i i had heard you know you know i, I knew somebody else they interviewed him in, in recent years and and i was told that he was very reserved and he is but but he's a great guy he has a, a very nice fa- family and um i mean i had a terrific visit with him Eric, uh, John McNamara, manager, time has passed. How does history look? How, how do fans look at John McNamara? Is he, is he a loved manager? What's the consensus on him? Well, you know, he, he recently passed away. Yeah. He passed away a year ago, and I didn't get a chance to see him. I, I had his phone number. I knew he was living in Nashville. And I had intended on seeing him, but I heard he wasn't well. And, and plus I figured, you know, I, I, I had heard an interview that he had done in recent years and, you know, he, he seemed to be a little bit confused about it. And listen, when you're in, in, in your mid eighties, I mean, I, I, I hope I'm still sitting here when I'm 85, you know, talking and, to us. I would be great. I, I would sign up for that. <laughs> okay. Uh, for my 30th book, right? So, but McNamara, I don't think would, uh, you could say, would go down as a beloved Red Sox manager. Seaver loved him. He loved him because, you know, he pitched for him in Cincinnati. And I got the sense from talking to the guys that there was, you know, he was old school. He treated the veterans one way, the younger players another way. He had his favorites. He covered for himself with some of the decisions that were made, like we talked about with Clemens. You know, he, by that point, you know, he, 
it was a little crotchety maybe, you know, uh, I mean, he, I think that if he were introduced before the Fenway crowd in recent years, there's no question he would have gotten a, a very good ovation, but I never got the sense that he was a beloved manager. Uh, it's a strong word to begin with. I mean, Gil Hodges was beloved, you know, but John McNamara was not beloved. No, but that's fine. You know, he had a, I mean, he was a career big league guy and uh, I know Reggie Jackson loved him. And so he, he got along great with the stars, but those middle of the road guys, the younger guys like Steve Lyons, you know, there was no love lost there. So I guess that's where I'm going with this. He, he wasn't Chuck Tanner, you know, where everybody, you know, from the 25th man on the bench to the number one, you know, loved him. Right. It wasn't like that. But, but he was the manager who made Jim Rice the captain of the team in New England, which, yeah. you know, which is, it was, um, um, I don't want to say controversial move, but it was a bold move. It was a bold move. It was. Yeah. Yeah, well, when Captain Carl retired after the 83 season, you know, Rice was their best player. I mean, I think he had a, a run of something like seven straight 100 RBI seasons, something crazy like that. And he was the guy. But, you know, McNamara could have given that captaincy to Dwight Evans just as easily, and no one would have said anything. So giving it to Rice, yeah, it was quite a statement. I didn't know McNamara well, but listen, I mean, he was uh, a career manager and so he must have done something right. And he, you know, he, he did take a Red Sox team from fifth place to the World Series with some help, but he got him there and, but just not beloved, a good manager, but not beloved. You're meeting with Jim Rice because he was, he had a love-hate relationship with the media, which is kind of ironic because now he, he is part of the media. Yeah. How is that the encounter with your, your talk with him? Well, I read about in, in the book how, you know, when I went to see him in Florida, uh, it was during spring training. It was in Fort Myers where they train. And, and uh, it was just this perfect day. There was, you know, breezy, sunshine, uh, beautiful morning, 75 degrees in Florida in March, and sitting in Louis Tion's golf cart for a while, talking to him. And I mean, it was just like one of those dream days if you love the game. And I knew I had to talk to Rice. And I'm like, God, you know, I hope I don't ask this guy the wrong question because, you know, he, from his playing days, you know, he's, he's mellowed, of course, now. You know, I, I just, the pressure was on because, I knew it would be hard for him to warm up to me. You know, usually I can get guys to relax with me, but with him, you know, I had interviewed him years and years before and he was fine, but he had his issues with the media and sometimes justifiably so, you know, then some members of, uh, of the media, what they'll do is they'll get a quote from somebody secondhand and it's not accurate. And I hear this all the time. And it would really piss Rice off. And sometimes, you know, there were a few occasions where he got into physical altercations, nothing crazy, but, you know, grabbing a guy by the shirt, whatever. So anyway, not that he was going to do that with me, but 
I just wanted to make sure that we got off on the right foot and he could relax. And, and as it turned out, he wanted to have fun with the interview. And, and, you know, I always come with my prepared questions, but, you know, he wanted to play a game. He wanted to play like the best Red Sox team of the modern era. And, and he felt it wasn't the 86 Red Sox, but the 75 Red Sox. And, you know, the team that he came up, you know, rookie year and, and he gave me a hard time right off the bat because I said, hey, you know, you came up with Freddie Lynn. And he says, no, no, no. Everybody says that. Let's get that straight right away. <laughs> Freddie Lynn came up with me. I'm like, okay. So, you know, like I kind of felt like a little bit bad when I turned in the manuscript. And like, here's a guy that really his teammates adored him. And he was terrific with young fans. And he actually saved that little boy's life who got hit with the baseball in the stands. And, and here I am, like, you know, the second page of the chapter, I'm getting into his conflicts with reporters. But it was almost like a gift that he kind of gave me, like, a little bit of a hard time. And, you know, I mean, it was perfect because he, he's not an easy interview. And so it was a gift that he gave me a hard time over saying, yeah, you, you came up with Freddie Lynn. You know, that must have been – he's like, no, 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 no. He came up with me. And then we played that game position by position, you know, the 04 Red Sox against the 75 Red Sox. And, you know, he had a good few laps over that because I couldn't remember who played first base for the 04 Sox right away. Right. And he jumped all over me and he says, ah, okay, well, you know, Yastrzemski was ours or, you know, Cecil Cooper was ours and, you know, who's next. And so it was good. And, you know, you come with prepared questions, but wherever the interview goes, wherever it goes, it's part of the story. The classic case when I interviewed Lenny Dykstra, my questions weren't worth the paper they were written on because he just took it over. He took over the three-hour interview, and it was much better and much more entertaining than my, than my questions. So, my style of writing, it's the new journalism. I incorporate myself, what I'm thinking while I'm talking to these guys. However that interview goes, so be it. Uh, it's part of the story. I could talk, you know what, Eric, I could continue talking to you, but it's not fair to you to keep you for <laughs> two hours or whatever. It's fine. I know. It's it's fine. Fine. I, 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 I have a new book I've got to start, and I'm like, Phew. You know, here we go. You know, I'm going to blink and it's going to be two years later. So really? It's, it's, it's really nice. I mean, you guys, some of these interviews that I do, you, you just know. I read the, um, you know, the, the uh, book flap and that's about it. Yeah. And, uh, but I can tell, you know, you guys read the book. Yes. And, um, you know, I mean, it, it's obvious. It's obvious that you guys are, you know, uh, tremendous students of the game. So it's a Thank pleasure you. to talk to you guys. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And we are that, I mean, that's why we do this podcast because we, we love baseball. We love baseball history. And, and yeah. it's just, we, and some, to, to be able to talk to you who, who, you know, writes such a beautiful, I mean, this is, this is seriously, this is a work of art. Okay. The, you, <laughs> you, it really is a work of art. You know, you paint with words and and you take you're right. What you you let them go with what they were saying. They open up to you, all these athletes. 
And and one of the things that people don't realize is, and, and now Jeff gets mad at me because I'll go all over the place now and I won't get to a question. But I'm not going to really even ask a question right now. I'm just going to say these athletes, yes, you know, they make, they make a lot of money, but you know what? They're human beings. And when you read this and you, you, you hear about, you know, Dwight Evans family, you know, his children and, and you re- I mean, just all that they what Buckner went through and just all the all the things in here and I there's so much right let me let me add you you'll laugh you'll cry right this is just uh just a a fantastic book and and Eric truth be told I've read six of your seven books and I love them all I mean I I, after the miracle is just uh you know just fantastic uh I did not know that you wrote you wrote out at home but, but um, Glenn Burke, and recently, I think I, I even texted with you that, that I read Andrew Marinus's book on, uh, on Glenn Burke, and then he had a picture of you in his book. I go, wait a second, the, the connection is just so amazing. Yeah, well, you know, actually, Jamie Lee Curtis is making a movie based on my book, Out, Out at Home, and I can't talk too much about it, but Andrew Marinus was the one to write the follow-up on Glenn Burke. He, uh, you know, he comes from writing royalty. You know, his father's a Pulitzer Prize winner twice, I think. His sister is a great writer. And, and of course, Andrew is a wonderful writer. And yeah, he incorporates me in the, in the story of Glenn, Glenn Burke. And, you know, he, he wrote how he was surprised that I would cooperate, you know, thinking that, well, it's my baby and everything. No, no, I mean, the important thing to me is that Glenn Burke's story gets out there. And, you know, I'm just so glad that, you know, Andrew wrote that book and it's, it's a terrific book. And, yeah. uh, you know, he, he and I write similar types of books. You know, we, our stories transcend the game. There, there's a human interest element to what we do. You know, I've, I've always thought, you know, I, I would do a book with Derek Jeter, but I just don't know how good it would be because as a player for 20 years, I always felt like he always won, you know, and there wasn't a whole lot of adversary. You know, there wasn't much conflict. Like I always joke, like when I give a lecture for one of my my books and I'm asked about, you know, Jeter or, or, yeah, like with Jeter, I, I always joke that like a bad day for Jeter is if he trips over some supermodel's pumps on his way to the kitchen in the morning getting coffee. Like, that's a bad day for Jeter, you know? I mean, all, all the guy did was win and date supermodels, you know? And he never made a wrong step. I mean, he waited until after his career was over to get married and have a family. I mean, the guy didn't make a bad move. And to me, I mean, is that really an interesting book? I... I don't think so. I mean, of course, you know, I'm sure that he has a story or two, you know, I, you know, maybe, maybe he didn't make the travel team when he was a kid or whatever. I don't know, but he probably did, you know, but there's just not a lot that he had to overcome. I don't think he, and so I would much rather write about the Glenn Burks or the Mookie Wilsons, who was a sharecropper son, you know, came out of, extreme poverty uh davy johnson you know who 
uh, was an army brat and everything he went through in his life. And, you know, the Steve Blass, who I wrote a book with, you know, who was an all-star pitcher and World Series hero. And then uh, one day he wakes up and he can't throw the ball straight anymore. You know, at the, at the height of his career, you know, it's like Beethoven, you know, mid-concert forgetting how to play piano. You know, so I like those stories. And certainly, you know, this Red Sox team, they were like a Shakespearean drama. It's, you know, the highest of highs and lowest of lows. And, you know, so many unique personal stories, too. Yeah, and you also have a chapter based on someone who didn't finish the season with the Red Sox, Steve Lyons. Yeah, um, he missed the party. And, you know, what was interesting about that was, here's a guy that, that was probably the only Red Sox fan who grew up in the state of Oregon and he gets drafted by the Red Sox. He comes up with them and he loves the Red Sox, you know, his whole life. You know, he, he grew up watching, you know, and rooting for Yaz and Canigliaro. And now he's a Red Sox. You know, the team's like eight or nine games in first place and he gets traded. How is he going to feel if they make it to the series? I mean, he's, he still has his apartment in Boston He's in Boston during the series. I mean, you couldn't blame him if he was going to root against them, right? I mean, I mean, had the Red Sox won, it would have made every other parade they ever had look like a like a kindergarten birthday party. I mean, it, it would have been nothing. And and so what what's he thinking? And I got him to open up to me in the book. He's like, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. There was a part of me that when that ball went through Buckner's legs. You know, and, and, and at the time, he, he just resigned his job, I guess, at Nesson. But when I was talking to him, he was one of the New England Sports Network studio guys, you know. So it took him a lot, a, a lot for him to confess that. Uh, but, yeah, he, you know, but I, I said, look, you know, you could tell your grandkids you were traded straight up for Tom Seaver. It's not that bad. In the book, and you know, guys obviously got older, but Steve Lyons looked like he can still be a uh, you know a, a player. I mean, he looked really good. He still looks young. Well, he's he, he's in his early sixties, but yeah, he he does Pilates every morning, and yeah, he's you know he's in great shape, and yeah, he lives on a beach just outside of L.A., and you know, he's he's living the good 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 healthy life, and yeah, he's. 62 going on 35. Yeah. Also sounds like Spike Owens living the good life as well. He described him living uh, outside of Vegas in a, in a well, I guess uh, the word is mansion. He has a big, um, living in a big house outside of uh, Vegas. Is that Spike Owens or is that Marty Barrett? Well, Barrett, I think. Oh. So, so Barrett lives just outside of Vegas. Okay, I got to mix up that. Um, no, that's okay. But, you know, Marty's done real well for himself, too. And he just recently moved to San Diego, but he has a place still in Vegas, a house still. And No, but Spike Owen, that little shortstop that they had, my God, he lives in a $10 million house in Austin. And But yet, when I interviewed him, he was managing in Kinston, North Carolina, for God knows what, probably, I don't know, 40000 a year. I mean, I don't know what they make in Kinston, but I, I entitled that chapter for love of the game because here's a guy that has 
in a state, like a compound in Austin, Texas. And this guy's still riding the bus or, or was still riding the buses out there in the North Carolina heat. And that's what he's doing, you know, for five or six months out of the year, instead of living the good life in his mansion, you know, it's a uh, big, because he, he still wants to be a part of the game and, and he doesn't need the money. You know, I mean, he's, he's doing it for one last crack at maybe the show. I love that. And he's, he's a terrific guy. Very the eternal optimist. You know, so many of these, uh, these guys are coaching, managing down in the minors. Um, I mean, we did an interview with uh, Jeff Todd Pratt, right? Right. Who was managing in the, uh, the Marlins system. I don't know if he still is, but he was at the time. And, and you realize how many of these guys are, are doing it because they love the game, but they all, you know, one of the questions is they don't think they're ever going to get to manage. They're not doing it so that they will get the chance to manage because it seems like uh, there's a certain manager that the teams go for now is the, uh, you know, uh-huh. Sabre guys and right. And you're nodding your head because you agree it's crazy. And these guys who have all this experience are being passed over. So that's. It kills me. I don't like a lot about the game today. I'm pretty good friends with Wally Backman. And I mean, I interviewed him for my book, uh, Kings of Queens, when he was the manager of the AAA Mets out when they were in Las Vegas. And I mean, that's when they had Syndergaard, you know, Conforto. And I mean, they had, well, I mean, they had like half the team that went to the World Series in 2015. And I mean, these guys loved playing for Wally. And Wally knew, I mean, he knows baseball. And he knows how to manage. And some of these guys, the Mets have hired, I'm like, my goodness. I mean, it's not just the Mets. I mean, there were, there were so many other chances for someone like Wally to have gotten the chance. I mean, he was manager of the year in the minors a couple of times. But they go with these push-button managers now, you know, that, uh, you know, that walk into the dugout, you know, with, you know, with an iPad. And it's all, I mean, there's no feel to the game. I mean, I'm all, I mean, a little bit of analytics is fine. Davey Johnson was the one that really brought that in to the major league dugout. And, you know, I have utmost respect for Davey. He was a terrific manager, underrated, I think. But yeah, the the managers today, I mean, they get the lineups most of the time dictated from the front office. The pitch counts, you know, I mean, the guy in Tampa just absolutely drives me crazy. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sinful what what that guy guy has yeah. done to his starting pitchers. I mean, you know, taking them out, no matter how. I mean, just the other day uh, against the Yankees, a couple of days ago, they had this pitcher. Honeycutt, I think his name name was. Yeah, right. Six up and six down. This guy's stuff was unbelievable. And third inning, and he's gone. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? You know, but managers like that, no matter how well a guy is pitching, if he hits his pitch count, or they, he doesn't want him facing the lineup for a third time because that lineup will hit 100 points higher than the first two times. I mean, how do you know? 
I mean, if the guy's got his stuff and so I, I don't want to get off on, on, on this, but it's the managing today, the manager, the managing of the pitching staffs, it drives me absolutely crazy and good baseball men like Spike Owen and Wally Backman, they get uh, left behind. Well, I, especially I, there's one person that I always say I want to have on this podcast and just specifically, I mean, obviously, we'll ask him other things, but I want to tell him how sorry I am that he got such a raw deal with the Mets and hasn't gotten another job, and that's Willie Randolph. I oh. loved Willie Randolph as a player, as a manager. I, I'm not a Yankee fan, but I loved Willie Randolph. And when he was the Mets manager, I thought he was fantastic. That He got his chance and the deal that the bum deal that he got was just it disgusts me. And the fact that he hasn't managed again, I, I don't understand it. And that's what I would tell him. That's come on, five minutes. Let me tell you that, Willie. <laughs> I don't know what it is either. I you know, I I mean the argument that I heard was that he fell short, you know, that the Mets were a highly talented team, you know, in two thousand six, two thousand seven, like that period when you know they had the the youngest best left side of the infield in baseball in right and reyes and you know and that randolph was a beneficiary of that talent you know beltran was phenomenal then and but i thought he did a really good job and certainly deserved another chance somewhere but you know he had this there was something about him you know he just seemed very laid back and 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 i think that came from him being under the tutelage of Joe Torre, who was also very laid back. And, and if you watch side by by side, a Joe Torre press conference and a Willie Randolph one, they were very similar. And, but it's normal, you know, Willie took a lot from Joe and, you know, Joe was um, very successful with the Yankees when Willie worked for him. So you can understand that, but I think, Maybe the owners just wanted to see a manager with a little more fire. I think that had something to do with it. Who followed Willie? Uh, Jerry Manuel. Remember when Jerry Manuel uh, got kicked out? Yeah, I think he was coaching, was coaching first or third. And he got kicked out of the game while Willie was, the, he, Willie was near the end. And, you know, he, Manuel just showed so much fire and then all of a sudden, Willie's gone and Manuel's the manager. That always stuck with me. And it, and it kind of validated what I kind of thought, that the Mets wanted somebody with some fire and the perception of more passion. And um, I think that may have hurt Willie because, I mean, as a player, he showed emotion, but not so much as, as a manager. And I just think that had an effect for some reason, despite his success. But I absolutely think that Willie should have gotten another chance. I mean, you see all these spots that opened up and, you know, for him not to get interviews, it was very strange. Yeah, he's a, a great baseball man. Kirk, again, thank you so much. Again, people take the book, Two Sides of Glory, 86 Sports and Red Sox in their own words. Go to the Pandemic Baseball Book Club. There's a link there to get the book. Go to your local bookshop. If you have to go to Amazon, go to Amazon. But (laughs) however you get it, get it. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Eric. This was so, so much fun. 
Jeff Leonard, thank you so so much for having me on and uh, love your show and keep up the good work. Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. I know, Len, I know you like to say, wow. And I'm going to say, wow. That was Eric Sherman is just a great, great baseball writer. Yes. That book was absolutely fantastic. I encourage everyone to get two sides of glory. You know, you listen to that interview and you're going to read this book because I think everybody should get this book. And you're going to, you're almost sorry that there was, there had to be a winner and a loser, you know, in that series. It just, you just feel so bad. You feel bad, so badly for the, uh, for the Boston Red Sox. Well, except um, for Roger Clemens. I don't feel badly for that one. <laughs> Once again, <laughs> another reason he's not going to come on this show. That's is, right. <laughs> oh, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. No, but just, you know, they, they were, they were great guys. They had a lot going on and whatever. And, uh, Anyway, it was it was a really great book. Great to hear uh, about that Red Sox team. Jeff, some other items that we should talk about or just mention is, of course, the Pandemic Baseball Book Club. Which Eric Sherman is a part of. Yes. And so please go on their website, buy their swag, get the books. And, of course, we have BaseballBBQ.com for of course, their baseball-themed grilling tools and accessories with the, you know, using the bat handles for the, it, all the things. It's amazing what they do with bat handles. And last but not least, fifthandcherry.com. Cutting boards like you wouldn't believe. And they're, they're absolutely, they're works of art. They really are. And Jeff, so now I guess we're going to go into Leanne Whippin. We're not going to make people wait any longer, are we? Here's Leanne Whippin. A 25-year barbecue competitor, KCBS certified judge, celebrity pitmaster, and restaurateur, including recent accolades, being named Food Network's Master of Q. After ousting seven barbecue greats on the premiere season of the Food Network's BBQ Brawl, a nominee for the Barbecue Hall of Fame in 2019 and 2020, winner of Food Network's Throwdown with Bobby Flay, restaurateur of multiple award-winning restaurants, including Chicago Q and Southern Cut Barbecue in Chicago, Woodchuck's Barbecue in Virginia, and Devil Pig in Tampa. Named Zagat's hottest BBQ restaurants in 15 U.S. cities and one of the best barbecue restaurants. Along the way, became a world, national, and state competitive barbecue champion and a go-to contestant and judge on a long list of TV cooking shows, including Chop, Big Bad BBQ Brawl, and BBQ Pitmasters. We are so happy to have with us Leanne Whippin. Thank you, Leanne. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Thank you. What the only problem is with that intro, Jeff, we're out of time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Leanne, I want to start right away with just this this question that has been burning inside of me ever since I heard you on another podcast. Mm-hmm. And we like to keep things light and whatever, but this is a serious question. And they said, you're an attractive woman and you are doing barbecue. And they made it almost like you, you don't get down and dirty. And then you said something to them like, well, you should see when I get when I get dirty and whatever. And I, and I thought to myself, I've never, ever heard anyone say to any of the men pitmasters, hmm. you're an attractive guy. <laughs> um, and so I don't want to start off with this, but I but I kind of do because it's it's so 
obvious that there is still sexism in in barbecue and and you know in general, but in definitely in this in this area. And I, I want to know, uh, and this might not be an easy thing to answer, and it might be long winded, but like the question is, but how do you deal with that? So that's probably one of the biggest challenges. I mean, I, I have had to overcome a lot of obstacles along the way, improve myself, and. When I first started on the circuit, you know, 25 years ago, you know, with my dad, fortunately, my dad knew a lot of the guys. So uh, everyone was kind of nice to me. My dad protected me. But when I was on my own, it was really about winning contests, proving that I could do it on my own. And that has been a stumbling, not a stumbling block, but just a challenge, even in the restaurants. In Chicago, you know, I kind of did a white tablecloth thing and I got condemned for that, yet it worked. It is, even to this day, a challenge, but I embrace it and just keep plugging along. (laughs) But then, then again, there's the other side of it. Do you think that there might be times because of how good you are, but that you are a woman, that maybe that might actually open some opportunities, maybe maybe with the media that you've been doing or, or anything. Do you think that ever helps? It definitely does. Women in barbecue, obviously a minority, and it's definitely helped as far as media. People like to talk about women in barbecue and what the future is, and a lot of the questions revolve around that. So it, it definitely has helped along the way. And I think it's great. Jeff, go Ooh. ahead. I've asked all the serious <laughs> stuff now. <laughs> go ahead. Give her a Okay. Good well, you, 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 before we went on, you mentioned you're from Jersey, but you've been opening up restaurants, seems like all over the country, you know, Chicago, Virginia, Florida. I mean, very successful. Could you tell us how you got into the restaurant business and what are your secrets that make it so successful? So uh, my background, a lot of people don't know this, but I was in the hotel industry for 15 years prior to hitting the circuit. So when I was very young, that's what I did. So I learned the business, the food and beverage aspect of it. When I got hooked on the competition side, I uh, you can't really make a living at it. And I knew that. So I kept my hotel job, but I also at the same time wanted to going to catering. And in order for my catering to succeed, I had to get a storefront. So that's why I opened up the first small restaurant. And it just progressed and and grew. And so I ended up with three restaurants in Chesapeake, Virginia, which overlapped with Chicago. And now I'm in Florida simply because my mom's in Naples. My daughter lives a mile away from me, and she had our first grandbaby. So I moved down from Chicago for family reasons. So that's why I'm here. And and usually wherever I live, I try to open up a place. So <laughs> it kind of goes hand in hand. So that's what I'm doing now in Florida. Is Congratulations on your grandbaby. Thank you. Yeah. The TV appearances, and for anybody that, that doesn't know, who we're talking to, if there's anybody out there listening to this, shame on you, because Leanne has been on numerous shows on the Food Network. She's been on Barbecue Pitmasters, Big big Bad Barbecue Brawl. I mean, Jeff mentioned a, a bunch of things. But are the media appearances a means to get 
the restaurants more visible and get more patrons? Or is that where you would like to go? Would you like to be more uh, with the media? Well, my first break was doing the throwdown with Bobby Flay, and I had never even seen the show when they did that. So that was back when I first opened Woodchicks in, in Chesapeake, Virginia. And I will say it helped a lot. I had lines out the door. So, but that doesn't last forever. And you still have to have good food. And then Barbecue Pitmasters came along and that was a whole different animal. But again, it does help your business. I'm not going to deny that. I've just been really fortunate. I love competition. So it isn't all just about being on TV. It's about competing. And so that's why I usually accept the challenges. (laughs) And it's tough. I mean, you're taking a big risk to go on TV and compete. Yeah, you might get your face out there. But if you bomb, if you tank, it could hurt you. So it has its pluses and minuses. But for me, over the years, it's definitely helped my business. As far as future aspects, the restaurants are really tough right now because of what happened, you know, with COVID and what continues to happen. Uh, food costs, labor costs, and hence I got out of the Devil Pig, sold my shares about three months ago, and I've pursued other other avenues in the barbecue world, doing what I love but not necessarily media related. I want to ask you about the competitive barbecue. So taking aside, taking out the business side of, of what you do, how fun is it to compete in barbecue? I absolutely love it. It's in my blood. I just find that competitions, because I've done it for so long, I've seen how it's changed. I've seen how the turn-in boxes have changed. I've, I, I've seen how the scoring has changed. And I miss the old days, quite frankly, because it really was a lot different. A lot of it's cookie cutter now. And I do a lot of judging now, like I'll be at the Jack this year judging and I know what to expect. It's going to be the same thighs, you know, the same turning box for the pork. And it, 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 there's no surprises anymore. It's very, the, the flavor profile is very similar. And I do miss back in the day when it wasn't like that. Yeah, they don't reward creativity. I'll just it's say really, the same thing. It's, yeah. yeah, it's uniformity. And, and I will tell you that I've laid off the KCPS circuit for a while because of restaurants and, and time and what have you. I was kind of like, I don't know if I even want to get back into it, but I actually, I think I'm going to do a comp in November here in Florida. And I'm going to do something that is extremely risky. And I'm going to kind of go back to old school instead of, you know, the traditional chicken thighs. I may go whole chicken cut up. You know, I'm just I really want to turn in really good barbecue, not, you know, the butter, butter, you know, bathed chicken thighs, you know, with the bite through skin. I I just really want to do what I really enjoy and what I like. And I may tank but at least I'll give it a shot. I think the judges, depending on the table I get, they might embrace it and they might like give me great scores. Like, holy crap, there's something different on the table, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So it might work to my benefit or my demise, but um, I'm willing to take the risk just for the fun of it. Either way, I'm sure it's going to be delicious. (laughs) (laughs) I try. (laughs) We just had on someone, um, uh, Larry Olmstead, who wrote a book called Fans. It's basically 
talks about people that watch sports on TV. I mean, there's many other things in the book, but he talks about people that watch sports on TV and then talks about the things that can happen from that. And some of it, which happens in barbecue, is people are they go out, they compete, which we saw with all the pitmaster shows. They maybe just go and get a smoker, they but the, or they barbecue more. It's it's funny because with with the Food Network and these cooking things, and I am guilty of it too. I watch, and it's not like I run to the kitchen and make something. I'm right. I'm watching, and it's just so funny because I'm watching people mix things, and I'm watching you know the smoking things, and I and yet I love it. And you're involved with these. What do you think is the is the best result from these from these shows that that happens with the fans? Well, I think that any food cooking type show is family oriented, which is hard to find on TV. It's either adult or kids, cartoons, whatever it is. These shows, the whole family can sit down and watch it and enjoy it. I think people like competitions. They like to root for their favorites, whether it be the voice or whatever it is. Competition Mm -hmm. shows are where it's at. That's where the ratings are. And it's nice to know that barbecue and food is included in that. And, and, you know, for barbecue, I think that it's obtainable. You don't have to have a great voice, but you can actually go buy a smoker and get out there and compete. You don't necessarily have to be a full on talent type person. You can learn your craft and it's obtainable. And when things are in reach for people, I think it makes it that much more fun for them. And I think it's really gotten people, you know, John Marcus, I mean, he's the at the forefront of bringing this all to TV. And I really do think that he has increased the amount of people and families that are involved in this sport. <laughs> <laughs> when you do go out and, uh, and on the competition circuit, you just mentioned a smoker. Are you bringing a pelt smoker or are you using wood? What's your favorite thing to cook on? So I have all of my equipment down here and I have my Jambo pit, which I love. And then I have a 24 foot trailer, which has a huge Jed master on it, which I love. And I usually bring WSMs, which are, you know, Weber Smoky Mountain bullets. Right. I have Um, one of those. And I actually usually bring two, possibly three. There was a time that I was bringing green eggs, but they're a pain in the neck and they break and they're heavy. And it's hard for me because sometimes I'm by myself. Uh, So I have certain smokers that I cook certain meats on. Uh, certain favorites. So I bring kind of an artillery with me when I go to comp. <laughs> it isn't any one in particular. I will say that I am now a brand ambassador, uh, you know, for Pit Boss. And so that has gotten me into learning uh, the whole thing about pellet cooking, because I'd really never got into that. And I am pleasantly surprised at what's out there and how it's moved along over the years. Cause I remember when my dad had one years ago and I was like, what is that? I didn't think much of it, but it, things are, are really moving along in, in smoker world, whether it be pellets, stick burners, you know, charcoal, whatever. So it, it's not to say that I wouldn't show up at the next competition with a pellet smoker as well. I, and I wanted to ask you about that. Cause I was doing my research I saw some YouTube videos. You were on the Harry Connick show showing the, the pit boss. And it was, I, I, I guess, a very unusual smoker because it had that glass in front, you know, not, not your traditional 
what people would barbecue on. Could you tell us about that that piece of equipment? Well, that that's a vertical, and of course, there pit boss is really cool in that they try new things, and people like to see food. They like to see food cooking, and the advantage of having the glass on the vertical is you can see what's going on without opening the cooker. So then it doesn't affect your temperature. So it has an advantage to that. It does get dirty though. You know, it doesn't look beautiful the whole time, but you know, there's always new stuff coming out there and there's a reason for it. So I I think that's why they put the glass on that particular cooker. There are two things. One, Leanne, Jeff keeps his grills immaculate. They are, I mean, as he finishes, he spritzes them. Okay. He, I mean, he really, and I'm not talking about just the grates. I'm talking about he spritzes the inside cover. The, I mean, he, you, you, he could bring it back to the store. (laughs) It's bad because sometimes you're taking some of that good seasoning off of it. Um, I will tell you that, you know, even in the restaurants, when I was cleaning the grates and till they were, you, you could see that the stainless, you put chicken on there, you aren't going to have any marks at all. You know, when you put it on something that has some char on it or whatever, it, it's going to be more attractive. So there's good and bad with immaculate. I like that, but I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other thing I was going to say is, as you said, with the, with the glass, if you're looking you ain't cooking. That's right. That's right. Yes. Famous words. Uh, anyway. Just going to say, yeah, there's a lot going on with cookers today. And I, I love checking out, you know, all the new gadgetry that's out there. I do feel as if that, uh, and I'm sure people are going to scream and yell at me for this, but, you know, for KCBS, for example, you know, they're allowed to use these digital controllers for temperature and Mm -hmm. it's taking away from really being a pit master, controlling your temperature without that. And, and, you know, without the fans and everything doing the work and it, it, and back in the day, as I said, they didn't have that. So it's, it's really a testament on, um, how good a pit master you are, but it can't be gauged anymore because there's so many things out there that do the work for you. Netflix just had a series that ended. Well, it's hard to say with Netflix because, you know, they put they, they put all the episodes out there and then you, you, you watch it when you watch it. But mm-hmm. I think uh, was it barbecue brawl. They just had, right? What, right. What that they did the second show for that. Yeah. So they had, you know, the first season and now I think they're auditioning for the second season. Were you did one? Did you what do you have? First of all, do you have to audition now or do they just call upon you? That's first. Then were you being considered for that first season? And if not, are you interested or being considered for the second season? So the barbecue brawl was probably the most intense interviews, Skypes that I've ever gone through just because, you know, I'd done a lot of stuff and had a lot of accolades. That wasn't enough. You have to fill out, regardless, all the documents, which are a lot of pages of you know stuff. And then you have to go through the Skype process. I probably went through at least four different long interviews and then uh, finally made the show. So I still, like anyone else, ha- has to go through the, the process. I've never been grandfathered in. I've never skipped anything. Everybody's got to do it. So 
as far as I know, that, you know, that's what you got to do. So the the Netflix show I'm talking about, though, the American Barbecue Showdown. Oh, sorry. I I said it yeah, wrong. That's the American Barbecue Showdown. So they had the first series, which I didn't even apply for because I had just come gotcha. off the brawl and I, I just really didn't want to. Uh, the second one, I, I can't say much on that right now. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So. See, now, Jeff, if we were one of those prying, you know, got to make news podcasts, yeah. we'd be like, right. what do you mean you can't say? What do you mean? Come on, Leanne. Leanne. Uh, All right. So they're, then they're looking for people. Let's just put it that way. Yes. Uh, or they're, they're interviewing people right now. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I did. I mixed up my barbecue brawl and my showdown and whatever. So but <laughs> I'm glad we cleared it up. Go ahead. Leanne, you were, you were nominated twice for the barbecue Hall of fame, actually. I see now you uh, nominated a third time. Well, congratulations. Well, yeah, it's it's just um it, it's so nice to be recognized and with the you know the group of people that are in there it's just mind-blowing to me. So, uh just to be nominated was huge. I didn't expect to get in, but uh still to be on the list two years in a row is is quite an honor. Yeah, and I, I was on the list and I'm not going to read the complete list, but Meathead Goldman is on there and Joe Traeger. Among uh, John Marcus, who you mentioned earlier. Right. right. Yes. Yeah. I, we're, we're actually uh, doing an episode for this show for a certain baseball person mm-hmm. who is was passed over for the Hall of Fame many years ago. And we are working on getting testimonies as to getting them in. So that's fantastic. Yeah. So we will. We will. We will gladly anyone who wants to have us fight for you to get in the I appreciate holding. that <laughs> <laughs> we will do it <laughs> so um, you, you mentioned you're going to be a judge at the jack right yes i am and um that's always an honor you know they obviously didn't have it last year i was a judge the year before and uh it's it's always great to see everybody there and and after last year, it, it it should be a really great time. And I like to judge just to see what's going on, you know, especially you have all these world champions, you know, that the Jack is cool because you have a lot of international teams. So like for the dessert category, they're turning in these desserts you never even heard of in the United States. So it's quite the experience all the way around. So I'm looking forward to that. And then I head to the World Food Championships in Dallas the beginning of November and they're doing a live fire woman uh, challenge, which I'll be judging that. And then I'll also, you know, be doing some demos out there, too. When you're on these these shows and you have a certain amount of time and then they're and the judges, I want to talk to you about the time. But the when the judges are talking about your food, do you have to bite your tongue sometimes because you just want to tell them? You know, let's yeah, see what you, you can do. Yeah, no, you definitely do. Um, a lot of people ask me, oh, is it really true? You know, with the times, you know, when the clock starts and absolutely it is. And that's true for chopped. You don't see the basket before you open it. When you open it, it's game on. When you are at these, the barbecue brawl, when the clock starts, it starts. There is no, there's nothing hidden there and that clock is true. And when they turn it off, it's true. When everyone's hands go up, that is all real time. That's probably the most challenging part of those shows is, is the time element. Cause a lot of the cooks can be super short compared to the meats that you're cooking. So you got to watch it. Yeah. So did you ever have something where it was not really done 
but you had no choice because it's yeah, what I it did. was. I, I remember it. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you remember this. It was a long time ago. And I really feel like the show concept really work well now. But um, And they've kind of incorporated bits and pieces in shows. But I don't know. I guess it was around eight, nine years ago. They did the Kingsford Barbecue Champion Series. And it was on Versus Network. And it was 15 people that went out there and you were allowed to cook the first round with your own cooker. Then they gave you another cooker. And then the third round, you had to kill whatever it is that you were cooking, which became very emotional. But anyway, I was lucky because I got lobster, but I cooked the lobster and I had to cook it on a lot cochina, which is a Mexican hog cooker. I underestimated because I never cooked on it before how long it was going to take. And my lobster was underdone. And I remember the French chef judge took the lobster out of the shell and there was a live audience there and he threw the lobster out into the audience and he says, this is not done. And and I was like, well, now I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, I remember that well. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yeah. Jeff, I don't want to hog it. So, okay. Okay. (laughs) Leanne, having you on is an honor for this podcast. There are, we know there's a lot of barbecue podcasts. There is only one baseball and barbecue podcast. That's true. But I am sure you get requests constantly. So I, we really do appreciate having you on. As a matter of fact, this morning, you're welcome. When I told my, I told my wife, I said, I'm excited about tonight, you know, having Lee and Whippin on. And uh, she's like, oh, wow, you must really be excited. I said, I am. So, <laughs> so, you know, you know, Jeff and I, we all, we like to, we're fans. That's the thing. Uh-huh. You know, we do this because we're fans. We, you know, we love doing this, but so I just wanted to tell you that that's kind of my, Thank you. you're welcome. Very I know it's unprofessional. No, but very heartwarming. <laughs> I appreciate it. Now, when I, so I was doing research and I saw something creative and dreams music network. I saw that you, when yeah, your name came a funny little... story back, gosh, whew, 15 years ago, maybe I was invited to the Capitol to cook barbecue for the uh, senators there. And they only allow food people to go in one time a year. And it's for this event. And they did barbecue one year. And they ended up, the senators and everybody liked it so much, they invited us back. And the person who organized it started Creative Dreams Network. And so he had actually put something on that. And uh, But that's how I got hooked up with that whole thing. And uh, I don't think that's been updated for a while. (laughs) And it's really music-oriented, and they have a a radio station. And, yeah, it's, it's pretty neat. So you went to the Capitol to cook for all 100 senators. Let me ask you this. Did they yeah. all get along? <laughs> uh, you know what's really amazing is that they were in sessions. So they have these little lights that go on and off when the session's off. And then they would come down and eat. And then they go back in session. And then they come back down. And, you know, they're all dressed in their, you know, full-on attire. And they're very kind. And they eat a lot of barbecue. It was pretty amazing, really. At least that's something they can agree on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Do you have any favorite sauces and rubs that you use or you just it depends on the type of meat that you're cooking? Well, of course, I'm a fan of pig powder and that's my dad's mm. dry rub. And yes. um, that's been around for years. It's one best rub on the planet. A lot of other awards. And he unfortunately passed last year and he he had my sister and I take over 
And so we've started a website, you know, she's busy, my sister, Diane Berglund, and and I'm busy. So we just got that together. And so we're trying to market a lot more than my dad did. He was great at marketing in person, but not online. So we're we're trying to uh, move that along. I also have in the works a spicy pig powder as we speak being made and also a couple unusual type sauces. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, retail dry rubs and sauces, you can't make a living at that. This is more uh, for the fun of it, really. Yeah, I saw, I, I saw, you know, when I did the dive, I, I always call it stalking, but <laughs> <laughs> I saw the pig powder, of course, and that's your dad's uh, yeah. dry rub. And then I saw something called Leanne Whippin's One two, three pack, which was, right. uh, so I'm working with Underwood ranches, which actually I've been working with them for a few years, but now, now that I'm away from the restaurant, I can devote more time to it. So one, two, three pack is where they're, um, you're using their South Carolina mustard sauce, uh, pig powder, and then either mild or spicy barbecue sauce. And I have a video on it instead of everyone says, wait, you messed up your numbers. It's three, two, one. Well, it's not, the amount of time that you're cooking, it's the method. So you're using the Carolina, which is a mustard-based sauce as a binder. Pig powder is the dry rub. And then the finishing sauce is the mild or spicy tomato-based sauce. So it's the one, two, three pack. So that that's in essence what it is. And Underwood Ranches has been around for years. They used to do uh, the sriracha sauce for, I won't say the name, but you know, the green top. And uh, they now do their own sriracha sauce and started this line of barbecue sauces. And it's absolutely insane how good they are. And the most amazing Part of it is there's no tomatoes in it. These are all made with pepper mash that they have out in California, and they just have tons of acreage, and it's been around for years. So it's really fun to work with them and try their different sauces. They just came out um, with a new hot sauce, and so I'm really enjoying that. Now, Leanne, I everything that you hear is that you know the restaurant business it's extremely tough. It's time-consuming as anything. Now, you're a single mom with two daughters. That's correct. So that, I got to tell you, I mean, I, I salute you for how you were able to, to build your career, to run your restaurants. Your daughters, well, are they involved uh, at all? My daughters, <laughs> they used to hit the trail with me, and they, they love barbecue and competing. Gotcha. Uh, unfortunately, they spent a lot of time in the restaurants doing their homework and washing dishes, <laughs> <laughs> and neither one of them want to be in the restaurant business because they saw what I went through as much as they love barbecue. My oldest is KCBS certified and we are looking at possibly doing some comps here in the area. So as much as she loves it, she knows that it's, it's, you have no life and they know that it it was tough. And now they're older. I don't have to deal with that so much. Cause you got the love from your father. Yes. And they got the love from you. So that's, it's, it's, it's very nice. That's the, I mean, it's the same with baseball, right, Jeff? I mean, uh, yeah. you know, I, I know I'm a Met fan because my father was a Met fan. My grandfather was a Met fan, you know, and that just. It trickles you know, down and yeah. it trickles down from the family. Totally. Leanne, what was it like to work with Bobby Flay? So Bobby Flay, I actually met him before I did the throwdown at the International Association of Culinary Professions, the IACP. They had their annual convention in Baltimore, and I was asked to go up there and cook barbecue. 
along with some other pit masters. So like four of us went up there and he was one of five celebrity people that were there. Uh, Steve Recklin was there, uh, Jacques Pepin, Idel, the sausage guy, and Jose Andres. Okay, so they were all there and they had to compete against each other on the same grill cooking a pork tenderloin. And Julia Child, they had aprons being signed for her foundation. So my stepmother was going around to all of these celebrity people to have them sign the apron. And I remember my stepmother saying, Bobby Flay wouldn't sign the apron. And I was like, what? And so I really wanted to meet him. And I remember taking pork belly out of the whole hog and like hand carrying it into him. And he thought nothing of it. Like he, he just wouldn't even give me the time of day. And that was back in the day when, you know, it was the Bobby Flay show and there wasn't a lot of chefs with chef shows, not a lot of competition. So he was the man at the time. Then fast forward when I met him, when we did the throwdown, you know, at my restaurant, totally different person invited my mom and I to this event he was at, had us in the green room, was signing cookbooks, was just so sweet. And I, I think that he finally realized, you know, that other people are treading on his turf and, you know, he needs to step it up. And then on top of that, doing the barbecue brawl, he couldn't have been more gracious, more helpful, so incredibly respectful. He's so talented and I can't say enough about him. And I have so many people come up to me and say, oh, is, is he a jerk? And I'm like, no, he's not. Because I feel like People that used to watch him years ago thought he was so arrogant and everything. And he's really stepped back and he, he's a wonderful human being. And, and um, I have nothing but great things to say about him. But it is interesting over the years how things change and people change. Leanne, we, we want to really thank you for your time. I got a, a one or two more questions I want to ask you. Sure. Len and I are backyard barbecuers. We, we pork, ribs, chicken, brisket. What are one of the more unusual things that you like to cook on the grill? Well, not unusual. I think it's stuff that's over overlooked, really. I mean, a lot of people can't afford cooking a whole brisket or a whole shoulder. So I'll buy a whole shoulder and I'll slice it and, you know, make pork steaks out of it. So it's about utilizing the bigger pieces of meats and, and how you can cut it and use it. But I, you know, I have friends that like to hunt. So I like to cook, you know, different types of wild game, whether it be venison or duck or whatever. So whenever I get something unusual to cook, I like to tackle that and take it on and try it. I think that's, that's a lot of fun. You know, things you just don't get in the regular grocery store. Leanne, you are famous for something other than barbecue, although you You've done it on the show. I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's <laughs> now we're we have to keep this G-rated. Your potato salad. Oh yes. Yeah. Now it's so funny because I knew that you were famous for that, and I saw something. And I thought I'm going to ask Leanne if she gives out that recipe for her potato salad. But then you I saw something. It. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And then you saw something (laughs) that that said, oh, it's Leanne's potato salad recipe. And I clicked on it and I didn't get a virus on the computer, but it said, oh, you have to be a member to enter or whatever. So I I don't know. But is your potato salad recipe on the Internet? Is that? No, it is not. I have guarded that with my life. It it was my mom's (laughs) recipe and I did tweak it. And I have some other things that I've added to it. 
I get asked for that potato salad recipe at least once a week. And that's, that's a lot considering this is today. <laughs> and, and I won the world food championship Reese's up, you know, potato salad ran the contest and I won first place, $10,000 and then I did it on the barbecue brawl. And of course, Chris Lilly couldn't say enough. He said, I'd give you more than 10,000. And it's, it really is good, <laughs> but the recipe is not out there. It is not. <laughs> I give clues to people because I feel bad, you know, like this person just, you know, asked me and I said, my mom will kill me if I tell you, but I will tell you, make sure you use Hellman's mayonnaise. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll say certain things that you could use. Uh, but no, that that's a well-guarded secret. Not Dukes, but Hellman's. You can use Dukes too. I mean, Dukes has a Hellman's profile. I think it's manufactured by the same company, Best Foods, if I'm not mistaken. Gotcha. Just gotcha. no Miracle Whip, please. <laughs> 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 no, no. <laughs> so we're not getting the recipe. Okay. No. That's okay. <laughs> Leanne, no, it's really good, Jeff. It's not okay. I'm sure. It's, <laughs> actually, we should hang up on it right now. <laughs> Leanne, thanks. Thanks again. Anything you want to, uh, you know, any social media you want to uh, let the people know? Any website? I know you have the pigpowder.com yeah, website. Yeah, yeah pigpowder.com, of course. Um, I did just start getting into YouTube. So I have a YouTube channel, which is a lot more time consuming than I expected. So that's Leanne Whippin Barbecue. I also am launching a website and then I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Leanne Whippin. And I'm really, I never had time to get into the social media thing. That's what I'm tackling now. And I'm self-taught. So it's taking me a lot longer than, and I'm not going to pay somebody to teach me. <laughs> Although my daughters have been very helpful. <laughs> I was just going to say, you have daughters who can do that. I know. <laughs> they work too. Uh, you know, my youngest is always like, how much you give me 10% this time? You know, she's anyway. So they do help, but I also don't like to depend on them. So I'm self-taught and, and I really kind of, uh, I'm enjoying it. It's something different for me. And it's, it takes me out of the grind of the restaurant right now. I need a break now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not to say I won't get back into it because I do love it. And I'm already getting the itch after the small time that I've been out, but just for obvious reasons, it's just not monetarily uh, where it used to be and, and worth, uh, you know, all the time and aggravation. Mm. And, and you, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say you, I think, and of course I don't know, but I, I think you're at a point where you have a brand, you have an image, you are Leanne Whippen. You've worked very hard to attain that and you probably can, uh, well. You know what I have, but I'm not very good at <laughs> trying to figure out this whole thing as far as branding, because, you know, I don't have an agent. A lot of people have agents and, and I just try to do it on my own, always have. But, you know, a lot of things resonate. You know, I, I DC Firefighter is a great friend of mine. He came down when I was at the Devil Pig and he's like, my God, he goes, you work so hard. You're on the line. You're working. You're working. And he goes, aren't you at a point in your life that you can get out of the kitchen? And, you know, <laughs> I really thought about that. Um, and I've been told that a lot of times. And I finally decided to take the plunge. And I will say that there's a lot less stress, a lot less stress, um, you know, not having to worry about what, you know, employees are going to call off or, or whatever. It's, it's a good time in my life. I'm happy where I'm at. And I look forward to, you know, moving forward. 
Well, we thank you for your time. Good luck with the Hall of Fame. Hope you get in this time. Thank you. you know, uh, we're pushing we, for it. Yeah, I definitely. appreciate that. Third time's a charm, right? We'll see. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you again. It's it's a real pleasure. And I wish I could have met you all in person, but this is good. Yeah. No, we. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you and very hopefully much. we will. And thank you, Leanne. I enjoyed that interview. What do you think, Glenn? I, yeah. Very, very, very good. I, I, I'm not going to say wow, because now you just you pointed out to me that I apparently I say wow a lot. And I'm I'm just going to say, oh, forget it. Wow. <laughs> that was. Yeah. Leanne, we thank you for coming on. We really do appreciate it. Both our guests, Eric Sherman, Leanne Whippen, really very enjoyable. So thank you, guys. We really appreciate it. So, Jeff. How are we going to end our show? Well, we're going to end it with a little Ace and Bobo. A wise choice. Yes. Episode 104 is in the books, as Howie Rose would say, right? Yes. Put it in the books. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.